Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Hello everyone, I'm Ed Cox. I'm the Director of Public Service Innovation here at the RSA and it's my great pleasure to welcome today's guest, Eric Kleinenberg. Eric is a Professor of Sociology and Director of the Institute for Public Knowledge at New York University. And he's the author of many terrific books, including most recently, Palaces for the People, which I was lucky enough to um, talk to him about when he visited the RSA in London a year or so ago. Eric, it's great to be able to talk again. Thank you for joining us for this special series, looking at how we might make sense of this extraordinary crisis that we're finding ourselves in at the moment. And first of all, I want to ask you, how are you? Um, I know that I speak for many of us here in the UK, um, sending solidarity to you over in New York, um, because we know it's going through a very tough time at the moment. Yeah, thank you, Ed. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm fine. My, my family's okay right now. Um, you know, we have a long way to go on this, unfortunately, and, and New York is a pretty tough place to be. Uh, I don't think England is that much better. Um, you know, I think we're we're in a very tough situation, and uh, we're just going to have to get through it. And whereabouts do you see um, New York being in, 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 its, in its journey at the moment? Um, what, what's actually going on in New York right now? Well, we're, you know, we're speaking in the midst of a, a really tough period. Uh, we were very slow to shelter in place. Uh, we, you know, we kept things open for a long time, and uh, we really suffered here because our uh, federal leadership, you know, from the Trump administration down, uh, tried to downplay the significance of this uh, health event. And uh, unfortunately, uh, that meant encouraging people to kind of go about business as usual uh, until it was too late to, to, to curb the real damage. And so now uh, in New York, the hospitals are overwhelmed. Uh, we're on kind of uh, volunteer labor in many healthcare facilities. Uh, there are far more people dying than they can hold at the morgue. Um, it's a it's a grim situation, and uh, you know I can just hope it, it it starts to go down better sooner than we think it's going to. Sure, sure. Well, we're very sorry about that, and you know we're suffering uh, in many ways some of the similar consequences here in the UK as well. But in this series of conversations, what we want to think through is how we respond to some of these challenges that are facing us right now. Um, I think we're all taking note of the deeper structural weaknesses, if you like, that um, this crisis is laying bare. And we're trying to begin to explore then what some of the bridges um, might be that we can build to a better future beyond this um, immediate um, emergency. But if, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with the immediate situation that we're in right now. Um, I'm involved for example, in a on-the-ground community work here in my home city of Manchester. And in recent weeks, we've been working with local groups uh, to find ways to support isolated and vulnerable people. And I've been regularly citing your study of the 1995 Chicago heat wave, where, if I remember rightly, those neighbourhoods where there were public libraries or other community facilities somehow fared better than other places that didn't have that kind of um, social interaction. Now, this seems like a very different kind of crisis now. We're actually being asked to distance ourselves from one another. But I wonder whether there are some practical lessons that we can draw from Chicago in 1995 um, that can help us, if you like, meet the needs of people and communities here today. 
Yeah, very much. I mean, it, unfortunately, it really does begin uh, with the political leadership, uh, because in Chicago, as in this case, as the heat wave started to move into the city, uh, the political leadership, uh, for one reason or another, was intent on denying its uh, severity and catastrophic potential. And so the top uh, political people in the city went on vacation. Uh, they'd never called an emergency alert. They actually refused requests to get uh, you know, more public health assistance. And as people started dying, the leadership in Chicago was literally challenging the autopsy findings from the medical examiner saying, you know, people can't be dying of heat like this. And, um, you know, obviously we're seeing a very clear parallel uh, with the coronavirus situation where the failure to um, take the science seriously and to heed the warning of public health people has proven to be really dangerous. At the very local level, though, you know, the thing I found in Chicago, as you said, is that the neighborhoods that had a robust social infrastructure, the neighborhoods that supported uh, intense engagement of people during regular times wound up being better protected in the heat wave. Uh, in the heat wave, what kept you alive is having someone come and knock on your door and check up on you if you were living alone, because it's actually very easy to save someone from heat-related illnesses. And obviously, the coronavirus situation is different because uh, we're, we're being told to be physically distant. Right. Actually, we're being told to be socially distant, which is a concept I don't like very much. Maybe we can talk about that later. But at a minimum, we need to be physically distant. And so, you know, going knocking on someone's door doesn't seem like it's the, the easiest thing to do or the safest thing. But that's not quite right, because as, as it happens, uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are older and who are frail. You know, they have some underlying health problem or they're very poor. And they are most vulnerable to uh, getting very sick or dying from the coronavirus. And we don't save them by socially distancing ourselves. You know, we don't save them by turning our back on them. Um, if they get sick in one way or another, the only way that they get through it is if, if we can lend them a hand in some way. And so I am seeing, uh, you know, here in the U.S., you know, what you're doing in Manchester. And that is, you know, despite the fact that... Uh, we are really quite vulnerable right now. There has been this extraordinary outpouring of solidarity, of you know people checking in on on older neighbors, uh, people reaching out to connect with um, relatives and friends, even people they don't ordinarily uh, contact, to make sure that they're okay. Uh, we're seeing people make contributions to food banks, um, you know, and we're seeing all of these people who we now have come to call essential workers. It's not not my favorite concept, but we're you know healthcare workers cleaners, uh, farmers, teachers, uh, all these people are making extraordinary efforts at this moment to try to get us through. So what I guess what I've been saying, uh, my lesson uh, from the last few weeks drawing on Chicago is that we're in a moment right now where we need physical distancing, but social solidarity, because it's, it's our solidarity that gets us through. Sure. And in this country, we've, we've seen quite a few kind of, let me call them top-down state-led programs. For example, a massive number of people volunteering to be NHS uh, volunteer responders, being able to go out and visit people, but also a very much a bottom-up movement as well. Um, mutual aid groups. I think we've got more than 2,500 mutual aid groups that have come about, which are explicitly not connected to the state. I just wonder what you see the relationship being between, if you like, big top-down state programs in an emergency like this and the importance of, of, of bottom-up, uh, more organically driven uh, type approaches. 
Well, you know, I think inevitably to really deal with the crisis of this magnitude, we're going to need, you know, massive federal and state resources. Um, you, it's only the government that's going to be able to, to supply us with the kind of medical care that we will need or the kind of you know, economic relief that will help turn things around because we are in this for a while. So um, there's certain kinds of supplies, ventilators, uh, med you know, uh, medical tests, things like that, that we can't do on our own. But that said, you know, we are the first responders. It, it's not the paramedics. It's not the government. Uh, your neighbors are your first responders. Your family members are your first responders. And we are in it together. Uh, and so th this um, uh, inc incredible surge in solidarity and in civic engagement to deal with the situation, uh, for me, has been uh, a welcome sign. Uh, it's, it's, it's necessary. Um, and I guess the, the challenge for us long term is to think about how we can channel this kind of uh, behavior into something uh, that, that's sustainable because, sure. because, because, you know, crises like these, like, like this one historically have served as switching points for societies. Uh, they, they can literally change history. And so what we're in the middle of, or sorry, we're at the beginning of right now uh, is a reckoning with the situation we're, we're first trying to survive, but then we're going to try to rebuild. And it strikes me that if we can, call attention to the incredible kinds of acts that we're seeing from you know, emergent groups and neighborhoods and cities around the world, um, we, we might be able to capture a, a different way of organizing ourselves that helps us get out of what, let, let's face it, was a very hard time even before the, the pandemic hit. Sure. I want to come back in a minute to that rebuilding. Um, we've been talking about building bridges here at, uh, here at the RSA. But before we get on to that, let me just ask you um, a little bit about, um, if you like, the, the equalities issues that are wrapped up in this COVID-19 crisis that we're in. Your, 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 your book, Palaces for the People, um, had a subtitle, which was How to Build a More Equal and United society and i think you know in chicago and in other situations you highlighted how there were um you know really innate inequalities that uh, were revealed by crises and i think we're again beginning to see uh, some of that um, both in the uk but also in the us particularly where um, the lack of adequate economic and health safety nets um, are really becoming exposed through this process, through this this, this crisis, and also the deeply divided communities um, that we see. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and how that's playing out in the US? Yes, well, it's early days, uh, but you know, it, it looks at the moment as if uh, social class and race, which is a way in which social class is uh, organized in many respects in the United States, uh, is, is structuring this pandemic. That's not a surprise because class organizes so much of our experience and so many outcomes uh, any, all the time. Uh, but it's, it seems like from the early maps of which you know, neighborhoods, which people are most affected, uh, that you know, the most affluent people have managed to shelter in place and work remotely uh, and get food delivered to their homes and to stockpile a lot of basic goods for long periods so that they don't have to go out much. Um, and when they do get sick, are managing to get better levels of care. Um, and on the other hand, uh, uh, you know, very poor people, homeless people, uh, have 
at a very high incidence of uh, the coronavirus. And now we're seeing these working class communities uh, are, are very hard hit. You know, they're recently, uh, we've seen some maps of which neighborhoods in New York have the highest rates of the coronavirus. And it's not the, uh, you know, the upper class Manhattanites who are on airplanes all the time uh, making financial deals around the world. Uh, it's working class communities in Queens uh, where people have to go to work every day and mix it up with other people and put themselves in harm's way. And then unfortunately, what, what happens after uh, working class and poor people get sick is that they get a lower level of care uh, or they, they don't get the care as quickly as they need. Uh, and so they are having higher mortality rates from the, you know, from the, uh, the virus itself. And that could also be because there's, there's lower levels of underlying health. A lot of, a lot of people have health problems that can get managed by good regular healthcare. And in a system like ours in the U S where so many people just don't have access to, to good healthcare all the time, uh, they're more vulnerable when something like this comes around. So I think this event uh, like so many previous disasters, is laying bare some of the hidden inequalities that organize life all the time in the United States. And, and I presume that will be the case in, in the UK as well. You should say that because um, in some respects, um, the challenge in the UK has been presented as one of an intergenerational divide with older people getting sick and younger people surviving um, the virus. So that's been more of the narrative here rather than a more class-based narrative. I, th I think that's clearly right. I mean, the older people are much more vulnerable and they will get sick, uh, get very sick more often and they will have much higher rates of mortality. So the intergenerational divide is there, but I, th I believe uh, it, it, will, it will be a surprise if the class divide does not show up in the UK. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. It might not be as pronounced because you have a more universal healthcare system than we do in the United States, and and that and that might wind up being protective for many people. But it's uh, you know it's very early in this process. Um, you know we have several thousand deaths in the United States, still under ten thousand, and the low estimates are that we'll have you know one to two hundred thousand deaths here. And so this is going to play out, and and it's just unclear exactly how at this point. Sure. When you um, did your study of the uh, Chicago 95 um, heat wave, you talked about it being a social, you did a social autopsy. Um, I just wonder if you're aware of anybody that's begun work on the kind of social autopsy of the COVID-19 crisis at the moment. Yeah, well, we're, you know, we're starting to make those assessments. And so the, the maps that try to see which people and which places are, have been most affected by the coronavirus are the beginning of that process. I think a, a good social autopsy also looks at the political management of a situation like this. And so, you know, I think a lot of us are tracking very carefully the policies that go into place to manage this. I mean, it is an extraordinary thing that uh, South Korea and the United States got their first cases of the coronavirus on the same day. Uh, and I encourage everyone who's watching today uh, to look at the trajectory of the, of the virus, the same virus in these two different nation states. Um, you know, South Korea took the evidence seriously. They took the science seriously. There was a very high level of social solidarity there. Uh, people trust uh, the expert knowledge that comes through the government and trust the recommendations. They tend to comply with them. Um, they tested early. Uh, and South Korea, at the moment at least, looks like it's handling the situation very well by comparative standards. Uh, you know, in the US, where we have uh, you know, leadership 
uh, from the Trump administration that, that really refused to take this seriously, that equated the coronavirus with the flu, that encouraged Americans to go about business as usual, um, that refused to call, still refused to call a national shelter-in-place order. Still, we're in April now, uh, uh, you know, uh, and, and then failed to, pre- to prepare the uh, healthcare uh, institutions for the surge in demand. Um, you know, that, that has made this much more deadly than it needs to be. And, and this, the, the lack of solidarity in the United States extends all the way down to you know, basic issues about information. So we have a, a news network called Fox, uh, you know, owned by Rupert Murdoch, that continues to pump out misinformation uh, that encourages Americans to think that you know, we're blowing this out of proportion, um, that, that the, the cure is worse than the disease, uh, and and uh, you know I really think that uh, that that our f- uh, failure to build solidarity uh, at the that kind of macro political level is making this more deadly than it needs to be. And so there, you know, I think there are a lot of us who are starting to work on the social autopsy. But this is going to be a big and co- complex event uh, that involves you know nations around the world and millions of people and. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of it's going to be up to uh, scientists and social scientists to to work hard and get this right and figure out exactly what went wrong, uh, and and I think that's a, a project that lies ahead of us. So if people are interested in in working on that, I, I really would encourage you to because we're going to have to figure out what the lessons are from this urgently because at the end of this, you know, we're going to have to rebuild. And there's there are some really quite uh, deep, if you like, social cultural issues at stake here. I mean, very often we think of the United States and indeed the UK as being a place where we've been encouraging uh, a sense of independence, of, of self-autonomy, if you like. Um, and and to some extent, that's now being exposed through this this crisis. And, and uh, the lack of social solidarity that we see uh, in our communities, right through to the way in which our, if you like, political systems work, uh, is really being exposed by this. Look, I think um, what we saw in the last, you know, 50, 60 years is the push for social solidarity that helped to build, uh, you know, the welfare state, um, kind of a lot of the growth uh, in industry, uh, the kind of general enrichment and improvements in quality of life in the most developed countries, including in the U.S. and and in the U.K., that was really eclipsed by the rise of this, you know, kind of, well, the the great Thatcher line is society does not exist. There's no such thing as society. We've seen the rise of a kind of hyper-individualism and the fantasy that the market, uh, you know, would just kind of get us what we need in a fair way. And... You know, I, I, it seems to me like the coronavirus is really showing the, the moral bankruptcy of a society organized around hyper-individualism with true faith uh, that the magic of the market will, 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 will benefit us all. Um, the, the nations that are kind of organized around that model are faring very badly right now. Uh, you know, if you don't make an investment in public goods, you know, like a public health system, you, you know, universal health. In the United States, we don't have guaranteed uh, paid sick leave for workers. And so, you know, we've seen a lot of studies that show that even people whose job is to prepare food in restaurants, uh, if they are sick, they, they tend to go to work because they don't want to lose their jobs and they can't forego the income. And so they just wind up spreading the disease. Uh, you know, our, our um, 
our kind of individualism, our failure to invest in each other has made this situation so much more dangerous than it needs to be. And I think that already, you know, we're, we're starting to see uh, a pushback against that model. So, you know, for, for instance, um, one of the things that the conservatives in the United States often run on is the idea uh, that we shouldn't have universal health care in the U.S. because the United States has the best health care system in the world. You know, anyone who's followed American politics knows that we are told over and over again that the U.S. has the best healthcare system in the world. It's a it's a market-based healthcare system. I, I can't wait to hear uh, the Republican Party run on the healthcare system as the best in the world platform in 2020, uh, because we're all looking at how badly it fails when it's needed most. Sure, and I guess that kind of takes us to thinking about the future. And I think one of the big questions that's emerging from this crisis is, is whether or not it might catalyze some kind of lasting change and, and open up space for a more fundamental social and economic um, reform. And um, I've heard you say in a recent interview that you think that this is a really uh, consequential moment, that, that, um, but there are different paths if you like that we might go down um there is of course the more progressive turn um but then again if we look at you know you've mentioned south korea china where they've managed to clamp down uh, on the coronavirus so much more quickly there's a path towards greater authoritarianism that's a, a possible route that's open to us as well or then there's a simple kind of return to business as usual i, I don't know which of those those paths do you think is is most likely as we as we currently sit here well, I do think that we are on the precipice of the most substantial period of social and political change of our lifetimes. I mean, I think the, the, the model we have developed around has busted. And to be frank, it looked like the model was falling apart even before this. Uh, the, the, the Trump presidency, uh, Brexit, uh, Bolsonaro in Brazil, uh, the, you know, the examples are, are, are endless. I mean, we, we have been in a period of extraordinary turmoil. Uh, but I think this really calls everything into question. And it seems to me like uh, for the first time in my lifetime, everything seems like it's up for grabs. Uh, you know, we are embarking in the U.S. on a multi-trillion dollar disaster relief financial stimulus uh, program. Who knows what it will look like in the end that will be more expensive than anything we've done before. And uh, I think that uh, we are going to see dramatic change. And the problem, as you, you know, just explained, is it's, it's hard to know exactly what direction that will go in. Uh, clearly, authoritarian leaders from around the world are trying to take advantage of this moment to give themselves more power. Uh, you know, that, that is definitely true of the Trump administration here in the U.S. In the uh, economic bill that just went through Congress and that Trump signed, is a half a trillion dollars for uh, Trump to do more or less what he wants with an extraordinary amount of money for him to control in a very kind of non-democratic way. Um, and of course, everyone in the U.S. is anxious that uh, Trump and the Republican Party will try to cancel the election in 2020. Uh, it's been the strategy of the Republican Party to try to reduce the voter participation uh, as much as possible in as many places as possible by kicking people off the rolls, by closing down polling places, you know, by making it hard to vote. Uh, and we're already seeing that happening. And, and, and I think many people feel like it's either going to happen at a level we've never seen before, 
uh, or there will literally be an attempt to, to put off the election. So there's a looming specter of more authoritarianism here in the U.S. and around the world. And, and, and I think realistically, uh, we need to recognize that that is a plausible outcome from this. I mean, I will tell you that uh, what I think is more likely uh, and what I think, you know, could be the silver lining that comes out of this horrific situation we're in uh, is that this event is going to show people uh, just what a bad model the market model is, just how uh, dangerous it is to presume that hyper-individualism gets us the best possible outcome. And I think we're learning uh, just how much we stand to benefit if we invest in each other and the public realm and social infrastructure. I mean, you know, consider how much we understand the fact that our fates are linked to the fates of other people around us right now. So, you know, if, if I don't invest in a public education system that teaches my neighbor uh, basic science literacy or the ability to think critically, and then, and then they hear that the coronavirus is just like the flu and decide to behave as they usually do, um, whose fault is that? I mean, it's, it's their fault for not complying with behavior, but it's my fault for opposing taxes that would help us have a, a real education system so people can learn. And I think on down the line, uh, we're seeing that societies that uh, pr promote universal programs, uh, that build solidarity, uh, that look out for one another, have greater capacity to deal with situations like this. And those that say, you know, everyone is on their own, uh, are, are paying a heavier toll. And so it is my, is my hope, um, and I think it's a genuine possibility that when we hit the post-pandemic situation, um, we will start to uh, build a, a, a new model of politics and, and rebuild around things like social infrastructure and public goods. Because you know, we, we now know, I think, with a greater level of, of certainty than ever before, uh, just how much we stand to benefit from that. Sure. And I've just read your excellent piece in the New York Review of Books um, about uh, climate change as well. And you make some links between climate change and COVID-19. And again, um, you talk now just about building social infrastructure, but also building green infrastructure as well. I, I, I just wonder, um, you know, what reflections you've got to share on the prospects of some kind of new green deal or green new deal, I should say, um, in, the, you know, in, the, in the wake of, of the crisis that we're seeing at the well, you know, like, as I said, I think we're going to be spending trillions around the world to rebuild after this. And, you know, there'll be tens of millions of tens of millions of Americans who lose their jobs and who, uh, you know, worry about how they're going to eat. Um, and we're, you know, we're going to have to find a way to put our, our society back to work. And we have long had an urgent need to uh, update and modernize our infrastructure, social and physical. And we have every reason, I think, right now to have not just a new deal, um, which is what built up the infrastructure for the U.S. in the 20th century, but a green new deal that does it in a way that's ecologically responsible and sustainable. So, so in the process of getting people back to work, you know, we can also be uh, you know, building new housing, which we desperately need, and new transit systems, which we desperately need, um, and converting our energy system, which we desperately need. Because the, the, the truth is that we we can't avoid the conversation about a green new deal as we as we look at new industrial policies and, and new ways of um, investing in each other 
and the and the moment that the the coronavirus pandemic uh, ends, we turn to a world that's facing the climate crisis head on. And you know, I think we all know at this point that if you just wait until the crisis emerges as a as a, a horrifying uh, danger, it's usually too late to have the the scientific solution. I mean, that's the, one of the lessons of the COVID uh, crisis, right? We we waited and waited and. Medical science doesn't have an easy solution. You, there's no magic pill that we can all take and save ourselves. And it's, it's, it's very much the same when it comes to the climate crisis. Um, if we wait until we're all going underwater um, and the oceans are poisoned, there will be no pill that the scientific community can give us uh, that changes everything fast. The only way to change everything is to do it in an organized way. And, and, and for my money, the, the Green New Deal has the best ideas we've seen so far. Fantastic. Well, just to finish, Eric, um, just just tell us a little bit about, um, you know, the, the kind of signs of hope that you've seen in recent days and, and weeks, whether those are at the very grassroots level or whether it's that macro level um, that you've just been talking about in relation to climate change. What are the things that that, that really filling you with, with with hope as we move forward in these very difficult times? Well, you know, I wish I could say that I was seeing it at the macro level. Uh, with you know new kinds of global cooperation and brilliant leadership from you know Boris Johnson, Donald Trump, uh, but I, I'm not yet seeing that. Unfortunately, uh, there, it, it, we're still doing too little, uh, and you know I, I hope we turn that around quickly. Uh, at the grassroots, on the other hand, I'm seeing all kinds of uh, evidence that you know solidarity is building, and that we are truly interested in, in helping each other. So let's just go back to Manchester. I mean, the fact that um, you and your neighbors are out there supporting one another and finding ways to lend a hand to people who really need it uh, is a great sign uh, you know, that we, we recognize uh, all the ways in which we are interdependent and can support one another. And it seems to me like the most inspiring things in this moment are you know, the teenagers who are helping older people learn technology skills so they can be on on Zoom meetings too, <laughs> uh, and FaceTime and Facebook, and the um, you know the young adults who are healthy who are doing uh, deliveries of food and medical supplies to the doorsteps of old people who are you know too concerned to go out on their own, um, or all the people who are you know helping to make donations to food banks um, and volunteering to uh, you know work in hospitals and provide other kinds of caring uh, services that we need all the time, but that we especially need right now. And so the, the signs that uh, there, there is a new spring coming and, and uh, an awakening of uh, kind of a solidarity that, that we need, I think are, are, are really there. And now the challenge for us is to channel that into a larger collective politics um, that, that helps us get through this on the right side and not on the wrong side, because you know, as, as I've said, I think everything is up for grabs right now. It's not at all clear what kind of event this is going to turn out to be. Um, it could bend us back towards uh, a more authoritarian world, but it could also uh, open something up that's uh, much needed uh, and very exciting, uh, a, a, a more just and sustainable world. And so I think it's, you know, I take it as my job and, and all of our jobs, uh, if that's something we want to, uh, to, you know, to be fighting for that. 
Great. Thanks very much, um, Eric. Uh, really appreciate you talking to us um, today. If you've been tuning in today, then do check out Eric's work, including some of the books that we've discussed, like Heatwave and Palaces for the People. They're really great reads, and they're also very useful practical guides for people wanting to make a difference in their community right now and looking for ideas to help build that better future that we're all hoping for on the other side of this crisis. Before we sign off, a quick reminder to everybody watching to stay tuned to the RSA's channels and social media feeds in the coming weeks um, for all the latest online event announcements, as well as news from our policy research team and our 30,000 strong network of fellows who are all working to build that more equal and united society that Eric has given us a glimpse of today. So finally, thanks again to Eric Kleinenberg and thank you all for watching and do take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews, and animations.